Okay, it seems we're on. This morning's reading is from Philippians chapter 1. We're reading from verse 1, 2 to 11. And this can be found on page 1178 of the Pew Bible. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Thanks, David. Um, my name's Steve Holmes. For those who don't know me, it's my privilege to uh, continue this series on learning to pray from Paul. I, one of uh, my colleagues in the university works on post-Soviet um, Eastern Europe and has been very public and vocal in commenting on the recent um, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And as a result, he had a warning that he might be um, attacked in various ways, particularly by computer hackers working for Russia. Um, he got an email one morning. Dear so-and-so, I do hope you're well. I'm writing to ask you to review the attached essay, attachment at the bottom. Signed by another colleague in the university, looked authentic, but having been warned, he paused. The colleague who allegedly sent it was famously brief and terse in his email correspondence and would never bother writing, I do hope you're well, at the beginning of an email. <laughs> so he rang him up, said, did you just say no? Um, sent it on to our computer security folk who confirmed that the attachment would have made a significant mess um, of his computer and possibly the university system with it. Sometimes knowing the norms of writing when they're being followed and when they're being broken can be very important in understanding what's going on. And I think that's true with this letter this beginning, particularly, of this letter of Paul to the Philippians. There's, there's a set of norms about how you write a letter 
Um, and Paul is, is following some of them, but he's breaking others and, and playing with more. And when we see some of that, we see into what's happening in the letter. We know quite a lot about norms for letter writing in the um, eastern half of the Roman Empire in New Testament times. We've got literary examples, but we've also um, dug up many bits of papyrus that uh, had letters on them which had been thrown into the ancient Egyptian equivalent of the paper recycling bin um, and uh, didn't get recycled. Um, and one of the things we know is that Paul's letters are long, really long. You may feel that when you read them. <laughs> uh, but we, it seems that most ancient letters were more the length of emails than um, what we have from Paul, a sentence, a few hundred words at most. Another is that the letter always began with the name of the sender and then the name of the recipient. We start, of course, with the name of the recipient, dear so-and-so, and leave the sender to the end. So here we've got Paul and Timothy to all God's holy people at Philippi. That's normal. That's how you write a letter. But then in verse 2, it starts getting interesting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the ancient letter for, formula would have had the word greetings here, um, almost always. You can see it actually if you look at in Acts, a couple of letters that are reproduced there in uh, Acts 15. The letter from the church at Jerusalem to the general, Gentile believers has greetings. Um, the letter from the uh, military leader to Felix, um, the, the governor in Acts 23, 26, <coughs> I'm sorry, starts greetings. Um, but Paul doesn't. And in fact, Paul's playing a game. Greetings in Greek is um, kairain. And Paul says grace, charis in Greek. It, it sounds very similar. It's a wordplay, but it means something different. And then he adds peace. Peace would have been the standard Jewish greeting for a letter. And then he, of course, identifies the source of the peace, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is, is playing a game here. He's, he's twisting the norms to say something different. He doesn't want just to say greetings. He wants to talk about God and the good things that God has given us. He wants to talk about grace. He wants to talk about peace. He wants us to know how God has blessed us. He wants his readers to know how God has blessed them. And he plays with the norms to make that work. It goes on, letters of any length always began with thanks and prayers. One of the earliest examples we've got from about 200 years before Paul's time is a really quite angry letter from an Egyptian woman to her husband um, who's left her uh, and she's demanding that he comes home and uh, she really has a go at him. <laughs> she means it. Um, but even then she begins by thanking the gods for his continuing health and stating that she's praying for him. Um, the thanks sound about as sincere as the dear at the beginning of a Dear John letter. Uh, but, but, but she does it because that's how you write a letter. And Paul again follows the rules. 
I thank my God every time I remember you and this is my prayer. But again, he's making it distinctively Christian. He's giving thanks for what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do. He's praying, praying for these people that God will be at work in their lives and bless them and help them. Prayer that love will abound more in knowledge. Sorry. Prayer that love will abound more in knowledge. Um, notice there's no, there's no object to this love that's mentioned. It's not love for each other or, or love for Paul or, or even love for Jesus. It's just love. Love as an orientation of life. Love as the, the central ground of, of everything they are, of everything we are. Which of course flows out in love for each other and love for Paul and love for Jesus and love for enemies. And love brings knowledge and discernment or he prays that it will, down in verse 10. 9 and 10, your love may abound more and more in knowledge and insight so that you may be able to discern what's best. How does love bring knowledge? There's something here about... The insight that a, a, an attitude gives us, something about the way we see differently when we feel differently. If our hearts are bound in love, we look past failings. We look past hurts. We look past the sins people have committed against us even as we pray in the Lord's Prayer and see behind that the truth a person made in the image of God a person wounded in all sorts of ways and broken by sin a person loved by God and called home by God. And as love gives us discernment, or Paul prays as love gives us discernment, so that we might begin to live better and better, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness, to the glory and praise of God. What can we learn from this prayer of Paul? Let me suggest two headings and then I'll fill each one out. The first is this way that Paul's playing with the letter form. There's something here, an example of how to appropriate culture. 
And second, of course, our, our theme and our series, um, things we can learn about how to pray from this prayer of Paul. Paul plays, as I've said, with the normal shape of a letter in his day. He doesn't ignore it, doesn't just say, I'm not going to do that, but nor does he follow it. When it works for him, thanksgiving prayers, he uses it to say the things he wants to say and to do the things he wants to do. When it doesn't work for him, the perhaps cold greetings at the beginning, he plays with it. A word that sounds similar, clear in, <coughs> close enough that it's clear he knows the normal pattern, but subverting and transforming it. Paul's demonstrating here a way between two temptations that will always face us when we look at cultural norms, any cultural norms. One is to conform and the other is to withdraw and both are wrong. The way between that Paul shows us is better. To conform is just to accept the cultural norms and, and sometimes we do that because it doesn't matter it's not important at least it's not important in gospel terms um, we were in Europe a couple of weeks ago and uh, um, so we drove on the right um, most of the time um, <laughs> I, I did try to go one, round one roundabout the wrong way um, but, uh, um, and, uh, but doesn't seem to me that there's anything gospel shaped in choosing to drive on the right-hand side of the road or the left-hand side of the road. So when we got off the ferry in Amsterdam, we drove on the right, and when we got back to Newcastle, we drove on the left, and that's just following the cultural norms. But sometimes cultural norms do matter. When it has to do with righteousness, truth, goodness, forgiveness. Sometimes we do have to say, no, actually, doing what's normal there in my culture would be inadequate to the gospel. So what do we do? Well, we don't just withdraw. Uh, withdrawing would just mean completely refusing the cultural norms. Again, you know, there are things that don't matter, uh, I've worn a kilt precisely once in my life and I intend to die having worn a kilt precisely once in my life. <laughs> um, just not a norm that I feel very comfortable with. Um, even after going to the V&A Tartan exhibition yesterday. Um, in fact. <laughs> but other times they will matter and for gospel reasons. And actually choosing simply to ignore the cultural norm will be wrong because it will be damaging. You may remember, some of you have been around for a while, when Eddie and Sue Arthur, um, who then led Wycliffe Bible Translators, came to speak at one of our church weekends. And uh, Eddie talked about his experience of Bible translation and uh, they were in inland West Africa. And he mentioned the verse in Hebrews um, that compares faith in Christ to a firm anchor. The language he and Sue were translating into had no word for anchor. Inland West Africa, the people traveled rivers in canoes, but when they got where they wanted to, they just tied them to a tree. 
that there was no heavy thing that you chucked into the riverbed or seabed um, to keep you, uh, keep your boat from moving away. How do you translate that verse, asked Eddie? Well, you could say, well, the cultural norms don't matter. We'll just invent a word that means anchor and expect readers to work it out and cope. But that would be an artificial, unnecessary barrier to people understanding the scripture and so the gospel. And that's something that we don't want to do. And actually remember what Eddie said they did instead. Maybe someone else does. Um, letters mattered in Paul's day in a way they don't now with no radio, no TV, no printing. Letters were the key official means of communicating decisions made by governments or other authorities. And so letter forms mattered. The norms here are like Chris Whitty saying, next slide please, in a pandemic news conference, or, or the Prime Minister behind a lectern in Downing Street, or the First Minister answering questions in Holyrood. And so the form mattered, and playing with it was a potentially subversive act, challenging the culture to make it do something, to say something that needed to be said Christianly. Christian discipleship, it seems to me, is often almost playfully subversive like this at its best. Paul's basic confession, Jesus is Lord. On the one hand, of course, a profound claim to ears attuned to the Hebrew scriptures where Lord is the most holy name of God alone. But when we realize that the claim of obedience made by Roman emperors was Caesar is Lord, we see another side again, taking something important, central to culture, and subverting it in ways that undermined and challenged the culture massively in order to confess the gospel. Some of you I know have heard me talk before, but I just like the example so much about um, the first time um, a Baptist church ever gave ballot papers to its members to vote on a minister. Uh, it happened in London in the 1820s, Right about the time there was a debate in Westminster about the, uh, what, was so called, what was called the Great Reform Act, the, the Great Reform Bill, as it became, um, did some useful stuff about constituency boundaries. Um, but fundamentally, it enlarged the number of people allowed to vote in Westminster elections from about the richest 5% of male landowners to about the richest 10% of male landowners. And there was this church within walking distance of the parliament giving ballot papers to every single member, however rich or poor they were, male or female, whether they were in service, some of them no doubt below the age of majority, still children, have a ballot paper, have a ballot paper, have a ballot paper, Prof profoundly subversive challenging the culture because all people regardless of wealth or sex or race or nationality or age all people are made in the image of God and the promise of the gospel is that the spirit will come on all people 
young man, an old man. Male and female servants. And so God's voice may be heard through all people. What of today? Think of a cultural reality. Let's, let's go big. Identity politics. The idea that the shared experience of members of a particular press group should shape political decisions. Um, massively influential, derided as woke nonsense by some cultural commentators, very aggressively promoted by others. It's a, a key dividing line in, in our culture presently. We can't just conform. We can't just withdraw. We can't take one side or the other, say this is right or this is wrong. How do we play with the concept, reimagine it in the light of the gospel? We might start by insisting that God does judge all oppression and dehumanization, and so that whenever there is a real instance of an oppression, of oppression of a group, it has to be right to call it out and to fight to change it. But then we'd want to insist that all of our identities are decisively relativized by baptism. In Christ, there is no slave or free, no Jew nor Gentile, no male and female. In Christ, all our political identities are made secondary to the fact that we are baptized. Baptism might be key here. In baptism, we're made one with Christ Jesus, a male Jewish carpenter who lived under Roman imperial occupation and who was God in, and is God incarnate. At least most of us here are not Jewish. More than half of us, I think, are not male. Unless someone visiting us wants to con contradict me, I think none of us are professional carpenters. I'm absolutely certain that none of us presently live under Roman imperial occupation. <laughs> Made one with Jesus, we still retain other identities. I am male, I'm English, stubbornly so, despite nearly two decades in a better place. But the kilt's a deal breaker, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a Baptist minister by vocation and a university lecturer by profession. We all still retain other identities and we can list them. And some of them, yes, in the cult we live in bring privilege and we need to be aware of that. And some of them bring trouble and oppression and we need to know that. But in the final reckoning, baptism washes them all away. Later in Philippians, in chapter 3, Paul will go on to insist that although he has every human advantage, all his inherited identities are irrelevant when it comes to the question of salvation. And of course, this remains true. I remember a friend, uh, uh, an Anglican minister, telling me about walking past a street preacher in Belfast, it was, um, he said, who pointed to him and said, when he was young, and he said, Are you saved, sonny? Um, and he in, was embarrassed to recall that he replied at the time, I'm an ordinan preparing for the Anglican priesthood. 
the evangelist came straight back with, well, you needn't let that stop you. <laughs> All of our identities are irrelevant when it comes to the question of salvation. What matters only is being in Christ Jesus through faith and baptism. But that doesn't mean that our other identities are nothing. Revelation tells us that when those who are saved are gathered, there will be a great multitude, no one can number, from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Identities remain. Navigating culture, but second, more importantly, praying, learning to pray with Paul. There's several things here, but let me just pull out two headlines to start with. And the first one is joy. Paul says repeatedly that he rejoices as he prays, as he gives thanks. Why does he rejoice? Well, not least because there is a fundamental confidence here. He's praying, he says, being confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, verse 6. Knowing that God's all-powerful hand is at work, we can be confident and so we can rejoice. And remember, Paul's writing this whilst in prison. But still this joy. And he's going to say it again and again to the Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. And so on and so on. This joy is the result of a gospel confidence. This joy comes from knowing that God is sovereign, that God holds us in his powerful hands, that God will finish what he has begun in our lives. We started singing 10,000 Reasons. The final verse of that song talks of facing up to death, but knowing that beyond death, 10,000 years and forevermore, there is a life of justice and joy in the kingdom. It's not to pretend life isn't hard, very hard at times. Paul's in prison as he writes, but it's to look beyond that. to the sure hope of salvation. I had a colleague who died suddenly about, um, what, six, seven years ago, John. Um, and uh, I remember when he died um, that just a few months before, we'd, we'd been in a seminar together and uh, John had sort of paused at one point and, and just mused um, really, when you think of the endless ages that we've got to come in the presence of God, 
None of this stuff matters. There's a perspective there that, that Paul seems to live with and that suffuses his prayers with joy, even when he's praying for people who are like this little Philippian church, in danger at least of persecution, if not actually suffering from it. Probably most of whom are poor and powerless, many of whom, no doubt, are, are slaves, but still joy because God is doing something in your life and nothing will stop that and that kind of leads to the second point that is priorities when you look at the way at the things Paul prays for here it's perhaps worth thinking about how do we pray for each other for Christian friends elsewhere. What is the focus? It's not, here's the list of folk who are sick. It, it, it's not, so-and-so's got a job interview coming up. Not even, this couple are about to get married or, or she's about to have a baby. Not that, Praying for any of those things is wrong, of course not. And uh, um, you know, in some cases, perhaps particularly sick people being sick, being healed, um, we're not just um, in, invited but instructed to pray like that in the New Testament. But Paul's first focus is on God working in people's lives to make them holy and ready for the day of Christ Jesus. That they may abound with love and that love will enable them to discern what is right. How often do we pray that for each other? For the churches that we know and love and support? Praying for the things that really matter, that go beyond the fleeting troubles of this life. Praying in the confidence that God is at work. Praying in the knowledge that in Jesus, God has overcome all evil and that a kingdom of justice and joy awaits us all and will come and will come and will come we're going to gather around the Lord's table in a moment and uh, celebrate what God has done in Jesus but before we do let's Stand and sing together, build my